everyone. Um, so as John mentioned, um, there will be two readings today. The first reading will be taken from Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zebuim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. The second reading is from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we, will be, we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to the sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon, uh, Inner West. Wonderful to be with you as we continue in Hosea. And uh, we're going to do a bit of a strange little movement rather than just continuing to chapter 4. We're going to go all the way to chapter 11, and you'll see why in just a second. Uh, let me pray that as we read God's Word, He will enlighten our minds and our hearts. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before Your Majesty, asking You from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of Your Word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. I want to tell you uh, a story of the time that the teenage Pete Greenwood tried to rebel. This may shock you, 
but I was not the rebellious type as a kid, more of the self-righteous type as a kid, more the goody-two-shoes, the one who obeys the rules, who does what my mum and dad always told me, and absolutely um, terrified of the idea that I might be seen as anything but that. But once, when I was about, I don't know, 15, 16, I uh, got a bit sick of it. I got sick of being good, and I thought to myself one day, that's it. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to show my parents. And so I did the unthinkable, in my mind at least. I slept over at my mate's house without telling them. I know. Coming home the next morning, filled with the thrill of what that was going to look like when they looked disapprovingly on me. Right. Unfortunately, the wind was taken out of my sails when I got home, only to realise that my parents trusted me so much that they never realised I was gone. (laughs) So it was a sad day. My little attempt at rebellion kind of just failed miserably, and I never tried it again. Uh, The book of Hosea, and I'll link this in a second, uh, uses two primary metaphors to help uh, the readers understand the unfaithfulness of Israel towards God. The first one we heard uh, last week, um, wonderful sermon by Kirsten on marital unfaithfulness, how the Israelites had perpetrated spiritual adultery by running after um, gods of other nations and putting themselves into a relationship with the um, political systems of other nations. In other words, um, They were unfaithful because they decided, Israel decided, that their deepest needs for for being known and loved um, and protected and kept safe could only be met, not by God, their kind of spiritual husband in that sense, but by other nations, other gods. Then, right at the end of the book, we find another image. Almost a mirror image. Um, Unfaithfulness, not through spiritual adultery, but through childish rebellion. Childish rebellion. The desire for freedom and autonomy that in their minds could only be found outside of the confines of God as their father, as their parent. Israel's spiritual rebellion was to say, I'll be free only when I can be the master of my own destiny. So we have these two images that almost um, act like bookends in Hosea. And from next week, we'll start to fill in the gaps between them. But today, we're going to look at rebellion, and particularly in the sense of childish rebellion. Uh, To this day, one of the greatest objections to being a Christian or indeed in any member of any religion, for those who are irreligious, is the perceived lack of freedom. Because it's thought that to give yourself utterly over to the authority of a higher power, well, that could only be oppressive. That can only make us less human, not more. And yet it was Jesus himself who said that obeying his commandments and true freedom are not mutually exclusive. Actually, they belong to each other. So freedom, although for many and for us as well, is a a fraught topic, 
actually, it's only in the, uh, the restrictions, the confinements, the, the, the commandments of God that we find true freedom, according to Jesus. Is this true? How can it be true? Well, we're going to find out. And to do that, we're going to look at three things. Uh, the freedom chase, the freedom trap, and the freedom truth. The, the chase, the trap, and the truth. Uh, let's talk about the chase for freedom, the pursuit of freedom. Um, it's really interesting in Hosea, um, why did he pick these two images? Well, they're descriptive of the most intimate, close kinds of relationships that human beings can enter into. The relationship of two spouses in marriage and the relationship of a parent and a child held together by blood. Uh, one, the marriage is held together by covenantal commitment to one another, where two people become one, which is wonderful when it's healthy and devastating when it's broken. And the other one is held by something even deeper than a, a marriage commitment, and that's biology, blood. Blood is thicker than water, they say. Uh, this image doesn't come from nowhere in the Bible. Um, back in Exodus chapter 4, God began to speak to Moses and reveal himself once again as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his forefathers. And this is what he said in 4.22. He said, Israel is my firstborn son. So God brought the family of Abraham into being when he called Abraham and said, you'll be a father of many nations. And as that family grew and eventually developed into the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, he could rightly say that Israel, in a way, is his son. His children, if you want to use the plural. Uh, and more than that, though, God didn't just call them his children, his son. That they, he acted like a father towards them. He was fatherly, and he proved his love and his care over and over again, doing what parents do, uh, guarding his children, protecting them, loving them, giving them his affection, forgiving their mistakes, teaching them about how to live, calling them back to himself, and all with the kind of patience that, at least for those of us who are parents here probably know, way more than the average parent. Talking about centuries of God faithfully, patiently calling his children to himself. His hope for Israel was that they would trust him, that he would not just treat them like children, but that they would treat him like a father, and a father who's proved his worth, who's proved to be trustworthy. This is the nature of the covenant he made with them. I will be my, your God. You will be my people. I will act like a father to you if you will only act as my children to me. If they would listen to him, then he promises to usher them into the kind of life which is full of blessing and promise and abundance. And that's God's hope for us too. Uh, things haven't changed in many ways from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God still calls us his Father. Jesus himself said, when you pray, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God has revealed himself to us as our Father. He could have used any number of different metaphors and images to talk about his loving care, but he chose this one. And so his hope is the same, that 
He would act towards us as a heavenly father who's perfect and, and we would act to him, to him, towards him as his obedient children, to love him and trust him. And that if we do, we would be ushered into an abundant life of meaning and significance and purpose, resting under his fatherly care, full of joy at the experience of his loving embrace. But sadly, um, the Israelites uh, were not obedient children. They were more like pouty, rebellious teenagers. Uh, Verse 2, the Lord says um, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 2, the more I called, the more they ran. The more he proved his worth, the more they rejected him. The more he called them, the more they blocked their ears. The more they treated him as worthless. They pursued a life free from the constraints of God's commands. They ran to worship other gods, um, disobeying the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. And they burned incense to those images. They sacrificed for them. A little bit like um, imagining uh, a teenager who leaves home only to join a gang. It's, It's not just leaving home, it's saying, you cannot, you are not a good father, you are not a good mother, you are not good parents. And instead, I'm going to find those same types of authority figures in someone else. Only to find that, actually, that doesn't go very well. And the life in a, in a, a life in a gang is full of violence and chaos and unpredictability and abuse. And so he comes home again one weekend and has, his, has their washing done and clothes mended and given some money, only to leave again on Monday morning back to the same gang. That's what the Israelites were like. And this is uh, representative of not just the, the behavior of the Israelites, but just human nature, the human pursuit for, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, freedom. The chase for freedom. There is something deep within the human heart that means that we struggle to remain under authority. And so we do all we can to create environments where we can become our own lords and masters. We want to make our own decisions, be our own masters, forge our own paths. We, we say to, to God or other authority figures, like a teenager would, you're not the boss of me. I'm my own person. Now, I'm certainly not saying there aren't circumstances within real families where it's, it's a, a teenager or even younger person leaving it is, is, wouldn't be a good thing because it's a toxic and abusive environment. That's absolutely true and sad. But it's also true that even children with amazing, loving parents can become rebellious. That little streak that I had that one day was not because my parents were horrible, amazing parents, and yet something within me wanted to rebel nonetheless. Something deeply ingrained within all of us says, I can only be truly myself. I can only truly come into the kind of life that I want when I'm free to be myself when I can throw off the restrictions and restraints of rules and boundaries. 
to quote the, a song that I've probably quoted too much in sermons over the years. Uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. You can Google that one later to find out where that's from. Uh, Irving Berlin uh, called this kind of freedom negative liberty. Negative liberty. Uh, a freedom to live your life without interference from other people. It's a big part of secular culture, the culture we live in in the West. That mantra of you do you is all about personal freedom. I have to be free to who I I have to do me. I have to be me. It's the only way I can be free. The deep mistrust of authority. And even it's funny that even after a year from when we had our lockdowns in Melbourne, people are still talking about, still upset about what the government asked of them during the pandemic. I'm not saying whether that complaint is justified or not, by the way, but simply observing that it's interesting that long after our freedoms have been given back to us, we're still talking about it. It, it, it impacts us deeply, this narrative that we can only be truly free when all outside influences are taken away. Now, it only takes a few seconds to realize that the emperor we really want to be of our own lives has no clothes because no one is truly free from interference. No one lives like that. No one truly, even my most ardently libertarian friends, and I have some, go to conferences and stuff, uh, don't actually live like this. We gladly obey the rules of the government. We try not to speed, and if we do speed and we're caught, and we're, we're told, we know that we're wrong. We pay the fine. And we are, only takes like three seconds to realize that we are far more influenced by mass media, marketing, the internet, our peer group, than we realize. Uh, nonetheless, like the Israelites, we chase freedom. There's actually a religious version of this chase as well, which hits home in Hosea and the other prophets. Because it's incredibly tempting to manufacture a view of God that largely has no problem with whatever choice you decide to make. A God uh, who is a doting father, if he's one at all, who's all about affirming our life choices. Or an absent one who doesn't notice or care. Or if he is a God who, in, who, who enforces rules, then maybe he's a God just not worth listening or playing down or rejecting. But there's another religious version of the chase for freedom, which doesn't look like rebellion at all, actually. It's, it's something which is much more like my character as a teenager, the goody two-shoes. It all looks very good and moral on the outside, religious people doing the right things, going to church, praying, reading their Bibles, signing up for rosters. You should sign up for rosters anyway. But anyway. Uh, it looks like that, actually, on the outside. And yet, ironically... You can look like that on the outside and yet inwardly be running from God, shamelessly breaking his law. How? Well, instead of recognizing God's laws and then deliberately disobeying it externally, it's possible to make God work like your slave by holding him captive to your own good deeds, to your own performance. 
It's possible to do all the religious things and then think either with actual words or some deep within your heart, now God will have to make sure things go my way. Look what I've done for him. Look how I've lived. Look at my, my track record, my performance. God is in my debt. What's that? It's actually still the chase for freedom. It's not coming under God. It's going over God and holding him, um, uh, holding him hostage. It's exactly what the Israelites did. Not in Hosea, but um, Isaiah 58 described it really well. Um, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion, notice, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So far, so good, right? Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Isn't it interesting? Isaiah does not shy away from calling this kind of holding God captive, expecting that I've done good things for God, we've done good things for God, so now God will do good things for us. Rebellion. He says it right there, declare to my people their rebellion. So yes, it's possible to rebel against God by kind of flouting his his laws. Yeah. But you can also rebel against God by obeying his laws and holding them over him. And the thing about both of these uh, ways forward is that they're traps. They're traps. Uh, It actually, the pursuit of freedom, the chase for freedom, uh, bends those people back under the yoke of slavery. The teenager that leaves home only to get in with the wrong crowd, have they found freedom in that crowd? No. No, they haven't. They've found subjugation. they found slavery. they found violence and crime and abuse and substance addiction. It's a bait and switch. And this is what happened to Israel. Verse 5 of Hosea 11. Will they not return to Egypt, where they were enslaved, right? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. So ironically, Israel, even though they're putting a finger up to God and running to Egypt, will only find themselves back the place they started, enslaved under the, under the coercive rule of a lesser authority than God. Will this other authorities, will they offer them freedom? Yes. Will they offer them abundance and prosperity? Yes. Will they come through for them? No. Because they don't have their best interests at heart. They're not a father. They're not a mother. They're just using them as pawns in the political game. And so chasing freedom without God is actually a deadly, terrible trap. And it's an old and ancient trap. Remember in the, in the garden, Genesis 2, Eve listened, Adam and Eve listened to the serpent's lie. What was it? God can't really be trusted to be a good father. He is out to restrain you. He's out to imprison you. 
He's out to keep you from your true potential. You'll be better off without him. You'll be better off on your own. Just eat from the tree. Become wise in your own eyes. Make for yourself decisions about what is good and what is evil. It wasn't true, but it was so attractive because it spoke to human autonomy, the desire to make our own choices. And when we rebel against God's fatherly authority, we follow the same trajectory. We think freedom lies just outside the door when actually it's just chains. And we become enslaved to our own sinful, selfish desires, finding ourselves trapped in cycles of greed and lust, never being fulfilled and yet constantly seeking fulfillment. Um, this is sin, obviously. Sin is not just doing what is wrong, but desiring to do what is wrong. Desiring to reject and rebel against God. And it breaks the Father's heart. Uh, Jackie and I have been watching Morning Wars on Apple TV. Uh, amazing uh, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherstone as, um, <coughs> as co-anchors on a morning show. And there's this scene where um, Jennifer Aniston's character goes to her daughter, teenage daughter, to talk about her impending divorce. Not her daughter's, Jennifer Aniston. She's getting divorced. Um, and the daughter just utterly rejects her, pushes her away. She is, in her mind, the daughter's mind, all that is there is her, the, the, why the divorce is hurting her, which is true, and divorce hurts children in immensely painful and deep ways. But um, Jennifer Anderson's character snaps. She begins railing at her daughter. She says, I cared for you. I loved you. I fed you. I birthed you. And now in the moment when I need care and love, you aren't there for me. It's a really great, powerful scene um, and quite uncomfortable to watch. And it's nothing, as I said, to dismiss the, the impact of divorce on children, but... Here is a raw example of the loneliness of a woman whose ch child is siding against her. Uh, this is just a human example of a fallible woman who's you know, just as much as fault in many ways as her daughter. But if, if as parents, as fallible parents, we can feel so much pain when, a child, when our children reject us, how much more, how much infinitely more would God feel pain and sadness and grief as a perfect father when his creations reject him? Verse 3 and 4, um, you, you get this pain. It was I, God says, who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. God laments how they have scorned his love and care, how he grew them, showered love and kindness on them, embraced them, fed them, patiently bore them for centuries. And as much as his heart was always towards them, and even though there were moments when they did truly recognize him as God and return to him and repent, nonetheless, the trajectory of their lives was always more and more towards unfaithfulness. And so God gives them over, 
eventually to the consequences of their rebellion. He'd, he'd had enough. Just like in Eden, he says uh, to Israel, like Adam and Eve, if you really want this, I'll let you have it. I won't force you to stay. I won't magic away your rebellious attitude like it was never there. I, I love you too much, he says, to, to make you robots. I'll let you go, even though it pains me and even though I know what trouble you will get into. Why would God do that? Well, it's because God, as the creator of the universe, is not just a loving father, but also a just judge. His children's wrongdoings not just harmed him as their creator, it's harmed his creation. Their selfishness has brought death and disease and dismay into the world. And so they come under his judgment. Remember in Hosea chapter 1 from last week, um, uh, Hosea and his wife Gomer uh, have three children who are named very specifically names that you would never want to name your child. Uh, Jezreel, which is a reference to a great massacre that Israel perpetrated against their cousins, Judah. Lo Ruama, which means not loved. And low army, which means not my people. This is an object lesson. These children were given this name to say that this is what Israel is now to God. Judged for their violence. The experience of his love for them withdrawn. And the presence of his kingly authority as his people taken away. And this is devastating because we are made to be uh, kept in the most beautiful relationship of love and trust of our Heavenly Father. We're made to know His authority and sit under it, free to truly be ourselves when we are truly free to obey Him. And so for God's people to be called, not love, not my people, the perpetrators of violence, then that is devastating. So the chase for freedom without God is a deadly trap. But there is a truth, a truth that brings redemption. Right at the end of this chapter, of this section here, um, the metaphor changes again to a lion. And if you're a big Chronicles of Narnia fan, then ears perk up at this moment as you think of Aslan. Why lion? And this is a lion who roars. Why do lions roar? Well, they roar for a number of different reasons. But um, uh, experts believe that one reason is that uh, often at the darkest part of night, when there's no light out on the prairie, the lion roars to locate members of his pride or her pride that have wandered off. They roar to bring their family home, to call them back into safety. So verse 10, this is God's promise. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. Here we see the aspect of God's heart that is not just wrath and judgment. He can't give them up. 
even to his own justice. He can't make them like Admar and Zeboim, those two cities linked to Sodom and Gomorrah that were completely destroyed. His, God's heart changes within him. He is overwhelmed with compassion. Verse 11, he says, I will settle them in new homes. Kind of reminds me of John 13. In my father's house, there are many rooms. How? How can God deal with his people like this? How can he at once justly punish them, pour out his wrath and judgment, and at the same time have his heart changed within and be compassionate and loving towards them? How can he say to them, you are not my people, you are not loved, and then at the same time say, you are my people and you are loved? Well, God kind of says it in verse 9. He says, I am God and not a man. Human beings can't hold those two things together, but God can. A human can only act in one of two ways with um, with uh, transgressions, either judge it with a full extent of judgment and wrath, or sweep actions under the rug and pretend that they're not there. And God does neither. And He does that because the lion that roars, not just the lion of Hosea, but the lion of Judah, who Revelation tells us is Jesus, the Son of God. The child of God, from the line of David, the one who represents Israel, who takes on himself their story and fulfills it, who makes all the right decisions when they made wrong ones. Jesus was the perfect son, obedient, honorable, respectful, full of trust in every way. He had perfect love between himself and his father, so much so that God could say over him, God the Father, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The stamp of approval, not, not a hint of rebellion from Jesus, even when he was tested in the desert, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even at the moment of his greatest need, he did not for a moment give in to rebel and make his own way. Jesus took on the story of Israel and was obedient, was the obedient son. Even to the Garden of Gethsemane in that moment of utter darkness when he could say and pray to God, God, may this cup, may, this, may the cross be taken from me and yet not my will but yours be done. And so on the cross, hung there, God treated Jesus as Israel and as we deserved. In a real way, Jesus was called Jezreel because the heavy black judgment of God fell on him for the violence and selfishness of, of humanity. The selfless one bore the punishment for selfishness. And he was called Lo Ruama. In that moment, Jesus experienced the withdrawal of the Father's love. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the only times in the Gospels when he calls God, God, and not Father. And he was called low army, not my people, because in that moment Jesus became no one, nothing, abandoned and alone, truly. He became what we should be, 
for our rebellion. The cross was a punishment particularly reserved in the Roman Empire for what kind of people? Rebels. Traitors. And yet, that's what he became for us. Now, some have called this like cosmic child abuse. If, if God the Father would treat his son like this, then that's the, he's the worst of all dads. Many have said that. That's a massive misunderstanding of what's going on because Jesus is not a third party, innocent third party here. Jesus said in the same book in, in John, I and the Father are one, united as God. God is Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, three persons in one indivisible essence. So for, it's not just Jesus hanging on the cross, it's God. So when God says, I am God and not a man, he can do what only God can do. He can be both the just judge and the justifier, as Paul put it. Both the just judge and the loving father. And so Jesus dying on the cross is God pouring out the punishment we deserve on himself. It is the final, undeniable proof of God's fatherly love that he is faithful to the end, that he would purchase our freedom. And in order to do so, he would, the, the price he paid would have his own freedom taken away, to be confined to this world, first as a human baby, as an adult with needs and wants and desires and hungers and thirsts and weaknesses, and eventually to be nailed to a cross. What, what other illustration of, of lack of freedom is there than to be nailed to a piece of wood, unable to move, unable to breathe. Death itself is the ultimate slavery, isn't it? The, the thing that takes away all freedom, the freedom to make all choices, is gone. And so God's Son, Jesus, was the freest entity in existence, and yet he gave it all up, becoming like a slave to all our enemies, to death and sin. Why? So that through faith in him, the lion could roar from the open grave and call his children home so that we would hear God's word and respond in faith so that we could be brought out of slavery to sin and to death because the price has been paid to redeem us. And to actually, with the Spirit's help, increasingly no longer run after those other gods, after those other nations, over those other pseudo-parents. And instead, because he's proved it and shown it to us, trust God as our Father. And so truly pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Friends, we are showered with God's love and affection as our Father. He's not just an impersonal God, an infinite being up there. He's our dad. Jesus called him Abba, like Dad. And if we believe that Christ is the truth and his truth has set us truly free, then what are we? Well, we can stop pretending that freedom without God is anything but a honey trap, sweet but deadly. We can stop believing that being in control of our own lives is even a good thing, even though our entire culture says that it is. We can stop trying to bend God to our will through our own performance. And instead, we can gain humility. We can humbly realize that in God's eyes, we are just like little children. We're not grown adults. We're like little kids. 
who need their dad, who are so susceptible to wandering their own way, so in need of his firm but loving guidance. And so we begin to see how his, his restrictions, his boundaries are not there to restrict us ultimately, to hem us in, take away our happiness, but to protect us. God is no dictator, no abusive father, no unfeeling drill sergeant. He's a good father. And we can find a place of rest in his warm embrace, in his house. Because, as Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. I'm going to pray and pray that uh, all this would be true for us and then give you a few moments to reflect. And you might reflect, if this is true, if God really is my Father, then, and if I really trusted that, how would that change how I live? Father, you are a Father. You are a Heavenly Father and you've proven over and over and over again that you are good and trustworthy. And you've done that ultimately because you did not spare your own Son but gave him up for us, and he gave himself up for us willingly. So, Father, may that wonderful truth not just be cognizant in our minds, but something that captures our hearts and fills us with the kind of joy and peace and faith that children should have. And may that be something that uh, so it captures us that we would be in this world like anchor points for those who uh, have been running for him from, from you for so long. And if there is anyone here who has been running, Father, may you, as the lion, roar and call them home. And may they know that they can come. Trembling, yes, with awe and respect, but not with fear, because your arms are open wide to receive us back. Amen. I'll give you a few moments, and then um, John and Kirsten are going to come and lead us.